Are you interested in true crime and mysteries? Then you need to listen to Who Done It Sisters. We cover Loy Evitz, who went missing during her lunch break at the Country Club Plaza. Notorious serial killer Richard Grissom. Daryl Allen, chased down at Ward Parkway Mall and shot over 50 times. Libby Caswell, strangulation experts say she was strangled and her murder scene staged to look like a suicide. And many more cases, including interviews with family members. Who Done It Sisters is available on Apple, Spotify, and all other apps. Maybe you can help solve the crime. Well, hey guys, I'm bringing you another story of the well-known and hated and feared New York copper, Lieutenant Remo Francesini. And nobody hated him more than John Gotti because Gotti knew that Remo focused a lot of manpower on Gotti, a lot of attention on Gotti, especially once he ascended to become the boss of the Gambino family after they killed Paul Castellano. The NYPD intelligence unit was not like the FBI. Now, Remo Francesini worked for the NYPD intelligence unit, and they investigated all five families. It kind of depended on, you know, where what looked fun, what looked interesting, what looked uh, possible, or if there was some crime that had been committed that had a lot of heat on it that was maybe a mob connected deal, then they might focus on a particular guy or particular family, but they didn't just focus on one family like the Bureau has, you know, the Bonanno squad. My friend Doug Fensel worked on the Bonanno squad and they have a separate squad, the Gambino squad, a separate squad for every one of the families at that time. Now, looking back over Remo's career, I found a great story about him exposing the fact that Frank Sinatra was meeting with wise guys there in New York City. He had put a wire on a phone and installed a hidden mic inside an East Harlem social club operated by a Lucchese family capo named Big Sam Cavallari. Uh, This club was located for you New York listeners. The club was located on 2nd Avenue between 11th and 12th Street. I don't have any more info than that. Remo put a listening post inside the basement of a low-rent apartment a couple of blocks away. Now, that's the way they, they would do it in New York. Tap in, put find the, the line for the phone and put the microphone inside someplace and then run it down and uh, along with the phone lines and up outside up to a pole and then maybe down a pole and then drop it back down into a listening post. And he just put one down the basement of a, this apartment building. And they just go sit in there on on their all by themselves sometimes, or maybe they'd have two guys. It kind of depends on who was available, and they may be sitting in there, and they may not. Remo usually sat on this listening post by himself. He was probably one of those guys. This is when he was still a detective. He's probably one of those guys that you know everybody else was wanting to go shopping or, or go dog off someplace. He would go ahead and keep working. Uh, he was a master at dressing to fit in the neighborhood because he grew up in the neighborhood or a similar neighborhood. During the summer, and it was, this was summertime, uh, so he wore a wife beater and shorts and sneakers. So, you know, he just fit in. He'd walk around. He, he'd maybe wear a uh, Yankees hat keep his head down and not really look around and catch anybody's eye, just like kind of glide on through like he had some place to go. One time he left the post to visit a uh, nearby bodega because he wanted to get some sodas. It was hot down there. And Big Sam happened to be on the street and he gave him a look as he walked by on 2nd Avenue. And when uh, Remo got back to listening post, he overheard Sam and another guy talking about him describing him and saying, you know, who is that guy? Because he didn't really fit it, you know, didn't recognize him from the neighborhood. These these neighborhoods and around these social clubs, if, you know, if you're like 
of an age and a male during those times, they're going to watch you and wonder who you are, figure you're, you're some kind of agent or a cop or whatever. And and they decided between the two of them that he wasn't a cop, he wasn't an agent, he was just some guy wanting to get laid by the broads upstairs. Now, Remo figured there must have been some prostitutes that, that had an apartment that, that brought guys in once in a while uh, upstairs somewhere in, in the block. He never did really figure out who it was. Uh, you know, it's always nice to learn that the mobsters you're watching buys your cover disguise, that you're just a guy in the neighborhood passing through. You know, I used to like to wear like service station work shirt with some kind of a name on it, maybe maybe even some kind of another logo for a gas station. And, and it kind of and then have a story ready about why you were where you were and where I worked. And if somebody confronted you when you're just in a neighborhood or hanging around close by someplace, it's always good. You need some kind of a story, something, some kind of a peg that they can hang their hat on say, and pigeonhole you as a particular whatever it is that you're trying to come off as. So it's a, uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game. Uh, I was never really confronted directly on the street uh, in a bar. A couple of times I was, and you know, I just played it off. One one time I just said I worked for the city. I said, well, "Where do you work for the city at?" And I said, "Pollution control, which is you know waste disposal, the the trash man." And, and nobody messes with the trash man. And, and I didn't really look like a trash man, but I was ready to say, you know, I was like a a manager, you know, downtown that that helped get the trash trucks out and all that. Sam Cavallari was a gambler and ran a book and he was had risen to capo in the Lucchese crime family. He started out as a soldier, of course, in East Harlem and he, and he always operated out of East Harlem. Remo knew that Big Sam always operated his policy racket and his sports book out of this particular club. Now, Big Sam was a real working man's mobster. He wasn't like Gotti. He didn't wear a $1,000 silk suit. He didn't eat and drink at the uptown nightclubs like the Coca Cabana, like his boss, uh, temporary boss at the time, Lucchese boss was Carmine Tramonte at the time, who loved the high lifestyle. Big Sam was content to stay in East Harlem, live in Queens and eat neighborhood pizza joints. And he'd do his business right there with people in the neighborhood. Uh, he rose up through the ranks to be capo, like I said, of this uh, Harlem crew. And he had a, uh, a pretty good sized group of wise guys in East Harlem and the Bronx that were, were loyal to him. They were totally loyal to him. His activities were kind of, you know, were more than just gambling. He was, he was a pretty, uh, he was a good earner, as they say. He corrupted local 29 of the Blasters, Miners, and Drill Runners Union, squeezing money out of contractors whenever they needed union workers. In 1980, he and associate Thomas Mancuso were the targets of a federal investigation into the racketeering. He also got involved in drug trafficking. He was working with and around the French Connection, which Tremonte was involved in that. Now, that was a notorious network of heroin smugglers that went from the 1930s, really, up to the 1970s. If you remember the movie, The French Connection, a uh, hell of a good movie. There was a book. The French Connection. I mean, this this was uh, those book that book and that movie. You know, this Robin Moore. He interviewed a lot of those guys, and that's the one where uh, uh, Gene Hackman played Popeye Doyle, who was really Eddie Egan, who who was part of this intelligence unit. Uh, uh, Remo would have worked with Eddie Egan. 
Remo discovered that Big Sam used an elaborate system to prevent law enforcement from getting to his accounting books that he used in a gambling operation. He knew the accounting books were the thing, the tally sheets and who the betters were and who was winning, who was losing. And, and each day they would they would tally up, you know, who had placed what bet on what game and what the point spread was. And then at the end of the week on payoff day, then they would go over that and go out and collect or pay off. Now, the wire revealed that the bookies and the bettors never called directly to the headquarters. Now, the, the headquarters for the actual gambling operation was not the social club. It was someplace else. And what they were, what Remo was trying to do, he wanted to find where this headquarters was, was located and then serve a search warrant on it and get all those books. And that would really mess them up for a day or two. And they make a few little gambling cases out of the deal. But what Big Sam was doing, he hired housewives and retirees who could be trusted that would always use their home phones as a, you know, several different answering services. So a bookie would call a particular phone operated by one of these housewives and he'd use a code like red for Joe or red for Pete. Now, red was the guy at the bookie headquarters and he would call these other phones periodically who weren't really connected to the gambling operation, except for this one unknown factor that they were just acting as an answering service. He would call them periodically and get these messages. Then he would call back out to these bookies who had called in the answering service. If they had wiretaps on any of these individual bookies phones, it would never have them call into where headquarters was located. They never, they didn't have that number. They didn't call into where the books were located. Now the bookie would call the, the guy at the booking headquarters where the books were located, the tally sheets and all that. He would call back out and they couldn't, they, they could only get those that number if somebody called into it where they had a wire. But if he was calling back out to the bookies, even though they had a wire on the bookie, they would get the, you know, they would get the gravy off the wiretap, the information off the wiretap, but they couldn't lock right into that number for some reason. It's different now, but back then it was like that. So as he was listening to these different bookies, individual bookies out there, he was not getting enough evidence to spot this headquarters or sports book headquarters where the paper evidence would be located. He needed to get that address. He heard a lot of other tantalizing tidbits, of course, as you do on a wire. I remember we had a wire going one time and on actually on a cocaine dealer and it, we identified another guy who was talking to him, but he wasn't, a, wasn't in the cocaine business with him. But there's some allusion to marijuana and they went over and trashed that guy and they found, I don't know, you know, tons and tons of, of detritus from kilos that had been gotten by this guy and broken apart. And so then they took that information and served a search warrant on his house and made a, a big haul of marijuana out of his place and, and put him away for quite a while. So, you know, those those other little tantalizing tidbits can help. He did hear Big Sam talking to one of his bookmaking guys and worrying why he had not been at work. Was he sick? Are you okay? Well, Remo knew that this guy was one of them that was working at the headquarters. So now they've got the name of one of the people that work at this booking headquarters where all the betting betters list were and the tally sheets and all that. Big Sam had called his home. So now they got his home. Now they got that address. They did a full background check on him, found this guy that he was talking to. They had an old bookmaking charge. So, you know, they start putting this together. They put a surveillance on him and it wasn't long before they catch him going into a building down in the Wall Street area more than once, kind of like he's going to work. And then, ah, so then you get around that building. You can't tell exactly where he's going on the inside. 
And one of them got lucky, and and I think they got up in another building across the street and saw him going into an office. So, boom, they get the search warrant. They take off Big Sam's headquarters. Now, it hurt him for about a week because the losers would, of course, forget that they had that bet and not pay. They might forget to pay, and they're not going to go. If they know that you've been taken off and all your bookwork's gone, they're not going to voluntarily come in and pay. And the winners all will be back demanding payment, of course. And this bug will reel that Big Sam had a police captain, New York PD police captain, that he was bribing because he was able to get a bunch of these tally sheets back and then make sure everybody paid up. And, and he paid it and knew he was paying all the right people. Remo never could figure out who this captain was. You know, that happens sometimes. You just can never identify who somebody is. Uh, one day he heard the Lucchese boss, Carmine Tremonte, in the social club calling a guy named Jilly Rizzo at his restaurant. Now, you may or may not recognize that name, Jilly Rizzo, but he was well-known friend, close, close friend of Frank Sinatra. He invites Jilly to some kind of a feast at the social club and asks him to bring some of the Yankees players who had been frequent in his nightclub and restaurant. Jilly replied, oh, yeah, I can do that. Oh, and yeah, Frank's in town. Maybe I'll bring Frank. Tremonti said, you know, hey, yeah, sure, bring him on up. Deep in down inside, he's going, oh, yeah, bring him up. A few days later, Remo sees them bring Frank Sinatra into the club. Now, you know, of course, immediately he gets down to the uh, bug, and, and but he's unable to get any conversation from Sinatra because of the Mike's location. Sinatra, a little bit when he was kind of close, he, he sounded like it might be Sinatra, but he was talking in real low tones. They couldn't really get any good conversation out of him. But all the other guys, the wise guys in the club were calling all their girlfriends and other friends and, hey, FS is here. Come on over. Because one guy replied, oh, who in the fuck is FS? Yes. Got the club trying to keep his voice low because they didn't want anybody to know they were calling people up. Said, you know, Sinatra, Frank Sinatra. One of the neighborhood kids was bragging, called some of colleagues like Buddy or something off the club phone that was tapped. And, and he's bragging how Frank Sinatra gave him a $50 tip. And Remo finds out later that this uh, Giglio Inglese, a great big fat heroin dealer that hung out in the club, took the 50 bucks off the kid, said, hey, that's a club's money, kid. That, that ain't your money. You know, what a jerk. What a jerk. You know, what a fucking jerk. 1969, a New York grand jury jailed Big Sam for refusing to testify what he knew about Carmine Tremonte and whether or not Tremonte had actually become the next Lucchese boss after Thomas Three Finger Brown Lucchese or Thomas Lucchese died. You know, remember Three Finger Brown Lucchese was the first boss of Lucchese family going way back. Since he was a capo under Tremonte, who was the acting boss of the family at the time, he figured they figured he could talk about it. Tremonte will later be nailed for financing a massive heroin ring in 1973. Now, gambling was Cavallari's passion and specialty. He ran a lot of different games in his territory, numbers, sports betting, card games. He had connections to Las Vegas casinos and bookmakers and people, you know, layoff guys all around the country. Made him a big player in the sports booking operations. Cavallari was respected and trusted by his peers and his superiors alike. He, he had had a close relationship with Gaetano Lucchese, who had been the boss of the family from 51 to 67. Big Sam had also mentored several younger mobsters like Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo, who will become the boss of the Lucchese family in 1979. 
Cavallari play now Cavallari will pay a heavy price for his crimes. In 1981, he was found guilty of criminal contempt and given three and a half years in prison for re- refusing to testify. And then, and and he died shortly after in 1987. And he was 76 years old when he died. So, guys, that's the story of how Remo Francesini was the New York cop who exposed Frank Sinatra meeting at a Lucchese social club with the acting boss of Lucchese family. I couldn't find anything else out there about it other than in Remo's book. So in Remo's book is pretty good. You guys might want to get that. It's a matter of honor, one cop's lifelong pursuit of John Gotti and the mob. So I highly recommend you get that book. So remember, I like to ride motorcycles. So make sure that you look out for motorcycles when you're out there. We just lost one yesterday or day before. Guy was going through an intersection. Somebody was creeping out, wanted to do a right turn on red, didn't see the motorcycle going on the cross street, pulls right out into him, and and he he killed him. And that's like the second guy we've had killed on a motorcycle in the last two or three days. Now, the other guy, <laughs> I heard about him. Other guy was one of these young dudes on these crotch rocket who was like going in and out of traffic in and out of traffic in and out of traffic and and somebody i think pulled over into him or whatever but uh you know when you start doing that you you know you're you're probably gonna bite or you're gonna get hurt eventually uh that other guy just going through an intersection i've had this happen to me where it just i was just so close just you know inches away from somebody pulling right out into me or right in front of me uh, several times because they don't see you when you're on a motorcycle. But anyhow, if you have a problem with PTSD, don't forget go to the VA website, get that hotline number. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, go see our friend Anthony Ruggiano. Uh, he has a hotline, anthonyruggiano.com or his YouTube page. And be sure and like and subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. And you know, I'm going to keep doing this. I really have a lot of fun with it. I get talking to a lot of interesting people. I talk to mobsters. I talk to agents that, like I talked to an agent the other day that, that was one of the agents that worked on Joe Messino as he went into the witness protection program. And he told me a lot of good stories about Joe Messino. My friend, Doug Fensel, who actually moved back to Kansas City, is is the guy that went to uh, Sonny Black Napoletano and left you Rosario and told them, hey, Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco is not an informant. He's really Joe Pistone, an FBI agent. And, you know, uh, Mikey Scars, got to talk to him, one of the first people to talk to him. He was a lot of fun. I really liked uh, Mikey Scars. Uh, you know, these guys, they, they all have uh, the good mobsters, have a good personality. They have, have a business-like demeanor. You know, it's just business. It's not personal. They just play by a different set of rules. <laughs> they were raised with those rules, and they played by a different set of rules And until they can't play by those rules anymore. Like my friend Steve St. John, he said, you know, I can't do it. He said people had come to the penitentiary when he was in the joint. And, and they would, you know, have some kind of a scheme for when they got out. And he said, you know what your problem is? You haven't done enough time yet. He said, I've done enough time. He said, he told me, he said, sometimes you'll accuse him of being afraid. He said, damn right. I'm afraid, <laughs> you know, what the hell? So it's good to see you guys again and uh, keep coming back. Thanks a lot.